Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy, author of Epic Fantasy Romance. I'm here with my first cup of coffee. Ah, delicious. Today is, say it with me, people, it is Friday, woohoo, uh, January 12th, 1-12-24, good sequence of numbers. Ah, so let's see, I have a number of things to talk about today and some news. Um, I want to talk a little bit about data and sample bias, which I promise to make more interesting than it sounds. Um, and also about coming back to a book later and being in a totally different place when you're reading it. But first, I have news uh, that on Twisted Magic, the audiobook is done. It's all recorded. It sounds great. My audiobook narrator loved it, which is always nice. And I just uploaded it to ACX. Well, I uploaded it last night, and I but I realized I had asked my cover designer for the audiobook cover. So and she's in the UK. So I asked her last night, and it was here this morning. So right before the podcast, I did clicky clicky submit for review. So now we're just waiting for ACX Audible to finish processing it, and it'll be up. And it'll be on Audible for 90 days. And then I'll put it up wide. So thank you, those of you who have been asking after it. Uh, my audiobook narrator had hoped to get it done sooner than this. But she ended up doing all kinds of travel over the holidays um, in December. And it seemed like a lot of us took time off, which is good. We needed to. So very exciting. I'm getting the audiobook out. I also took steps last night. I got a, I had a productive day yesterday. Not a hugely productive day writing, but I'll talk about that a little bit. But um, I got something off my list that had been on there since the beginning of December, which is I am going to put new covers on the Sorceress Moons books. Um, some of you will know that I had put new covers on them, well, a while ago now in 2022, and it was late 2022, and I was never pleased with them. The gal I worked with was super flaky. It took forever to get them done, and they're supposed to have a cover design on the spine, and she screwed it up and then never fixed it, and it's like sometimes business-wise, you just have to write things off. Uh, water under the bridge. I'm just letting it go. I'm using get covers to do new designs and I sent stuff last night. So I'll be working with them to get that done. I'm excited about that. And when the six books are together, it'll make a design on the spine. I swear. So um, that's exciting news for me. I have been, well, let me talk about writing. Um, I'm still, I, I, going back and forth, long-time listeners will know that I always have this ramp-up phase when I've taken time off writing. So I'm really trying to be pleased with the fact that I've written over 7,000 words this week. Um, I still have today to go. Um, yesterday was just slower. I only got 1,300 words yesterday. My best day this week, I got a little over 1,900 words on Tuesday. Um it's funny because like Monday was 1742, then I did 1917, 
1726, and then yesterday was 1301. And But it was funny because yesterday I was feeling kind of nicely relaxed about it. I do have time to write this. Um, so I would like to get back up to more like 3,000 words a day, but I'm also not feeling like I have to do it, which is a good place to be. I have a friend who just had to cancel um, a release that was coming up soon. I've been beta reading the book for her and she has COVID and she was trying to work through it and she was killing herself and she didn't want to let go of the pre-orders. We would really love it if Amazon would let go of that rule. For those of you who don't know, sorry, I had to pause, let the cat out of my office. Killian was in here. Um, Amazon has this thing that if you have a pre-order, if you have a book set up for pre-order, you can push it back for 30 days. You can push the release back twice. Um, but if you do it after that, you get penalized. They cancel all of your pre-orders and she had over a thousand pre-orders. So she hated to let that go. And then they won't let you do a pre-order again for a year. Uh, you know, and Amazon gets to do what Amazon wants because they, you know, they rule, <laughs> they rule our lives, but none of the other platforms have this penalty. And I would love it if Amazon would give up on this. I mean, if you're, I don't know, even if you're a chronic repeater on this, is it that big of a deal? They always say it's for a good customer experience, but I don't know. So, um, it seems to me like readers can figure out if you are an author who is always, always, always screwing around with your pre-orders and pushing them back forever. The readers can figure it out and they can cancel it. They don't need Amazon to do it for them. That's my position and I'm sticking to it. So, um, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about my ramp up on Amethyst Run. I'm feeling good about the book. I am discovering things about it and the world and the story as I write it. So I think it's good that I'm writing the full thing. No more writing on spec, right? I think that's just the take home message. Not only is traditional publishing not liking buy on spec, I do better if I've written the whole manuscript. I know Jennifer Eastep says the same thing. She just has to write that full first draft, which she says is always what she calls the vomit draft. I don't like that because I don't feel like I don't like to refer to my work in those terms. Uh, maybe that's my grandmother. It's not ladylike. But also, I mean, I know some people say that their first draft really is that bad. But yeah, I'm, I don't care for it. Anyway. Um, but yeah, she, she has to write her whole first draft before she even knows what the story is. And maybe I do too. Even with Onira, I think I mentioned that, you know, even though that felt like it fell on me from out of the sky and pretty much wrote itself, I discovered when I went back and did the revision for my tour editor that there was a lot of stuff that needed um, clarifying and tightening up. So that's being a right for discovery author. So, um, oh, reading. I've been doing a murder bot reread. I've mentioned that and very much enjoying the reread. I've read the new novella and decided I need to go back to reread. 
And what's funny is, is that the, the Murderbot Diaries by Martha Wells are all novellas except for one novel. And the novel's called Network Effect. And what's funny is, is when I read that novel, I did not like it. I really did not like it. And my assistant, Corrine, who I actually turned on to this series, um, and she loves it. She's always a more forgiving reader than I am, which is gives me an interesting metric to compare my own, my own to. Corrine uh, thought that... Um, she loved the novel. And when I said that, I thought that I had all these ideas. I said that I thought that um, Martha Wells' storytelling for this series was just much tighter than the novellas and suited the character, suited the voice. Um, I know that I had very particular opinions about Murderbot's voice in the novel versus the novella. Um, yeah, and I remember just really not liking the read. But then going on to read the ensuing novellas and being happy again. Well, so as part of this reread, I read the novel again. And I freaking loved it. I loved this novel. And most saliently, I remembered very, very little of it. So I don't know if I like started skim reading. I might have. I remember being confused about some things in the book that... I absolutely should not have been confused about and was not confused about this time. Uh, so I think I was like, was skim reading it. I think it's important to note that that novel came out in the spring of 2020, which was full pandemic lockdown. And maybe I was more distracted than I realized. Maybe I was day drinking a lot when I read that novel. I don't know. But I think what's most important, besides the fact that it's a wonderful novel, it's brilliant, that's, and many apologies for anything I ever said scathing about it. I should go back and revisit my reviews. Although I usually don't review stuff if I, don't, if I can't say wonderful things. But, you know, like even my complaints that we weren't in Murderbot's head enough uh, for the novel, it's all there. It's there. And I don't know why I didn't see it the first time. And I think what's really interesting about this is that how much subjectivity affects our reading, right? And we always say this. We always say it with like book reviews and so forth. You know that, oh, well, you know, reading is subjective and what one person likes and what, what you know, another person might not and all of this. And, and we know that like rereading books at different points in our lives. I've talked about some of the rereading I've done with like, Robin McKinley's books. And it's, it's interesting to me to come back and read books, you know, at this point in my life now, like 30 years later after I originally read them and I have such a different lens on the world. And I think even though we acknowledge that we change throughout our lives, I don't think that we really embrace the fact that our brains are unreliable organs that we think in totally different ways at different times, even a few years apart. Um, this could have been a completely different novel. But the thing is, is I know the way reality works, right? The novel is the same. So what's changed is in here, is in my head, um, which is an interesting thing to wrestle, right? That 
my brain that my perception is so completely different on this read than it was now almost four years ago. How is it four years? Ah, time flies. So I think that, um, you know, like as writers, we get hung up on reviews. Um, you know, even if we try not to see them, you know, we have the thing where, you know, like when Dark Wizard came out, and I was very proud of that book, still am, and a lot of people love that book. I had um, a reader who had been like a faithful, faithful reader and reviewer who just, you know, like gobbled up everything. And she read it and posted this sort of quasi-review where she, I mean, she totally bounced off of it because she felt like the world was too dark. My agent bounced off of it because the world was too dark for her. Um, and this reader of mine said that she was going to decline to review it because she thought that other people would probably like it. And so she wasn't going to say anything about it. But, you know, clearly she just hated it. And I don't think she's read anything of mine since. At least she hasn't tagged me on anything. Um, and, of course, you know, I'm not going to go chasing after her saying, well, you know, that would be bad. That would be bad and wrong. But I kind of wonder if if she, and I mean her as a general example, like if she read Dark Wizard now, would she be in a different place? Because that was also kind of a pandemic book. And, you know, that affected us in more profound ways than I think we even realize now. I think, you know, now that we're really getting the feeling that pandemic is over, um, you know, when David and I were traveling for Thanksgiving and Christmas, it was the first time that it felt like things were really completely normal again. You know, like the rest areas were stocked again. And, you know, it wasn't like this weird supply chain stuff anymore, you know, that it feels like life is actually back to where it was pre-2020. And, you know, Fauci said it would take years and we didn't want to believe him. I sure didn't, but he was right. So, yeah, I think, you know, the way that our lives and our emotions and what we're going through color our perceptions is... Um, it's a thing, you know, and so I think that it's something we really have to keep in mind as authors uh, that, you know, when people review one of our books and they don't like it, well, there could be a lot of reasons for that that have nothing to do with the actual book. So this is the other thing that uh, it segues neatly into the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is bad data and sample bias. Uh, and I feel like I'm getting so many examples of this lately, especially in, you know, like, well, <laughs> forgive me, but other podcasts. So you all listen to this podcast. Thank you. And you know that you were listening to my opinion. And I tried to do my best to give you um, pretty much authentic information. If I'm giving bad information, I don't realize it. But there feels like a trend in media where, and it's kind of begun with the like the Fox News entertainment thing um, of just sort of throwing stuff out there that is shocking or incendiary, um, making these broad assertions 
some writers were sharing a podcast the other day, and I'm not going to give specifics between this guy who interviewed someone else in the community who I generally like, but I think tends to make broad assertions. And one of the problems is that when someone has an agenda, when somebody is invested in proving any particular thing, um, that there is going to be some some subjective bias, right? This is like the same thing that I'm talking about with reading books, right? So when people are giving information about reading habits and traditional publishing versus self-publishing, it's usually pretty easy for me to discern which team they're on. And this was a conversation that was really anti-traditional publishing. And while I feel like traditional publishing has its problems, some of the things that were being said were just, well, flat wrong. I mean, there were these generalized assertions that about things that I actually know are not true, that are not factual. Uh, and people can just say them, but that doesn't mean that they're true. And now people are passing this around and saying, oh, well, this is amazing information. I didn't realize any of this. And I'm like, well, part of the reason you didn't realize it is because it's not actually true. Um, and, and then there was another one that went out today that was like uh, an article in the Washington Post on like reading metrics that was a sample size of 1,500 people. And if you know anything about science, 1,500 is a really, really small sample size. And it's not, it wasn't a randomized sample size. Apparently, this is like an ongoing feature. And I think it's not meant to be taken seriously. I suspect it may be like the 1,500 people on the Washington Post email server or something like that. Uh, which is definitely a biased sample, right? But there were absurd things in there, like statistics that said that men read more ebooks than women, which I just don't see how that's possibly true. Um, they also said mystery was the most popular genre, um, whereas we know from publishing statistics that romance is far and away. But people don't like to admit that, especially to their colleagues, right? Um, and a good example of sample bias was in my Discord, a couple of the people were talking about struggling with migraines. And, you know, one person mentioned it and a couple other people chimed in and said, yes, I understand I have crippling migraines too. And somebody said, oh, well, I wonder if this is a writer thing, you know, like maybe writers get migraines. And I had to be pedantic because sample bias gets me, and particularly lately. And I said, well, you have a biased sample already because every single person on this Discord is a writer. That's why we're there. And so when you get a percentage of people in here saying that they get migraines, that doesn't mean all writers get migraines. It's because everyone here is a writer and then a percentage has migraines. So I checked, and in the general population, about 10% of people worldwide, or more than 10% of people worldwide, get migraines. 17% are women. Um, and I think that in my Discord, it was something like 
it was, but it's a very, very small sample size, right? So the, your percentages get skewed. So I think it came out to like 30% of the people in the discord mentioned having migraines. Um, so that's a good example of sample bias, right? You know, like you've already, it's not randomized, right? We're not looking at all people and then looking at all people. Probably what we'd have to do is look at all people with migraines and see how many are writers and then look at all writers and see how many get migraines. But when you're already looking at a small sample group of people who are already writers and whether or not they get migraines, you know, then you really cannot draw the conclusion that migraines are a writer thing. Anyway, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm annoyed about sample bias these days. I'm, I'm annoyed that these articles go out with these assertions that are um, sweeping and overgeneralized. And I mean, maybe it doesn't matter, but I'm just going to tell you, writers, when you read these articles and you consider the source, look at the people saying the the things. And if they make certain generalizations, like um, most self-publishers make sell over a million books, that was something that was said. It's not true. Most? Most is such a vague word. And I don't think it's even the preponderance, the majority. Um, so yeah, just really take this stuff with a grain of salt and check around to other places. Uh, you know, there's the whole thing with confirmation bias. When you read information that confirms what you want to believe, um, it makes you happy. Uh, but be careful of basing decisions on that. All right. That's enough for me today. Uh, I hope you all have a fabulous weekend. And I will talk to you all on Monday. You all take care. Bye-bye.